see the world from a totally different perspective? Ready for provocative conversation, intriguing stories, and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. What if you took the time to... And welcome to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca, your host, and I'm thrilled to be here. And I'm psyched that you've tuned in. If you're new to the show, let me go over a few things that you might want to know. First, if you want to reach me, you can email me at info at talkwithfrancesca.com. There is no H in Francesca. If you miss part of the show, you can hop on over to my iTunes page where you can also listen to hundreds of other episodes of Talk with Francesca. And if you want to know what else is going on, including upcoming shows, giveaway, etc., etc., visit my website, talkwithfrancesca.com. This show is sponsored by Terramia Restaurante in the North End, when you will only accept the absolute best in Italian food, great service, and an intimate setting. Terramia is your go-to spot. I know because it also happens to be my favorite. And there's parking. Yep, you heard that right. And don't forget to tell them I sent you. Alrighty then, put your seatbelt on because we're going deep. Sometimes a shrink, well, just needs a shrink. Enter Lori Gottlieb, a psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which is being adapted as a television series with Eva Longoria. She writes the Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist Advice column. She's a sought-after expert on relationships in the media, such as the Today Show, Good Morning America, the CBS Early Show, and CNN. Lori started seeing a therapist when her boyfriend broke up with her, turning her world completely upside down. Expecting to get married, she reacted like the rest of us would. Her world felt pretty much shattered. She initially thought she could get through this crisis in just a few sessions, but ended up in therapy much longer and learned a good deal about herself in the process. I love this. She says that her most significant credential isn't her license, but that that she is a card-carrying member of the human race. And she's here with us now. It's great to have you back, Lori. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. Thanks so much. It's so nice to be here. Lori, your book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is really quite unconventional. I mean, you really, you turn back the curtain, not just with your patients, but with you as a patient also. You know, if you ask a therapist about themselves, the first thing they want to know is, why are you asking? Putting it right back, (laughs) right? Putting it back in your lap. Um, No divulging their stuff. So what made you decide to be so transparent about your life and and, in particular the crisis that you were in? You know, originally I was going to write about um, the four patients that I do follow in the book and tell their stories because I really wanted to bring people inside the therapy room to see real life, not the Facebook or Instagram version of life, but <laughs> the way life is really lived. Yes. Um, and, and, and I think it's, it's a real privilege to get to see that. Not many people get to see that. And I also think that we learn about ourselves through the stories of other people. But as I was writing those stories, um, you know, I thought about the fact that when I was seeing those people, I was going through an upheaval in my own life, and I felt that it would be disingenuous to have them be so vulnerable and then for me to kind of be the expert up on high and not and leave out this whole part of the story, which is that I was really struggling with something at the same time. So 
I become the fifth patient in the book, and um, you see my four patients go through what they're going through, and then you see me work through what I'm working through with my own therapist. I've never marked up a book so much in my life. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) You have your highlighters nearby. (laughs) You say that despite all your training, as I said in the introduction, that you're first and foremost, uh, that you're a card-carrying member of the human race. I I really, really love that. So, So talk about that a little bit. You know, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about what therapy is, and ultimately it's this very rich human experience. And nobody wants to go and talk to a robot. Nobody wants to go and talk to a brick wall. They want to go talk to a human being. And I think that on the one hand, my humanity is my greatest tool as a therapist. And on the other hand, I think people are very afraid to think about their therapists as as being real human beings. Yeah, well, I think it's it's scary for a therapist to start talking about themselves too much or or being kind of human. I don't know, when maybe in the old days, you know, if a therapist talked about themselves, that was definitely not a therapist you would want to see. So they sort of had yeah. this, this this sort of veil. Do you know what I'm saying? Right, and and, you know, very much... It hasn't changed that much, meaning that we don't talk about ourselves. We're, we're there to talk about the person who's come to see us. But at the same time, we use our humanity. We're not necessarily talking about what we're using, but we are using it. So the fact that I was going through what I was going through, I would literally come from my own therapy session and learn something that I thought would be really useful to my patients, and I would bring that to them, not saying, hey, I just came from my therapist. Um, <laughs> but, but No! Oh, not but, that. But really using using something that that was really profound or eye opening to me because I knew that it could help them too. Give us an example. An example might be um, at one point I was talking about how I was feeling trapped by all these circumstances that were happening in my life and my therapist said to me you know you remind me of this cartoon and it's of a prisoner shaking the bars desperately trying to get out but on the right and the left the bars are open and it was you know at first you think oh you know a cartoon is going to teach me the meaning of life no no thank you but in fact it was so interesting to me because I think so many of us feel like we would rather be the prisoner shaking the bars. We don't want to see that the right and the left are open because with freedom comes responsibility. Now we have to take responsibility for our own lives and face some kind of uncertainty or change and that can feel really scary. So sometimes it's just easier to cling to the familiar narrative of, you know, I'm the victim in this. But so many times we're not the victim and there's a lot that we can do. I think that we all, therapists included, need to make sense out of what seems like a a senseless mishap. Why do you think so many people are surprised when they learn that therapists sometimes see therapists? Um, I think that sometimes they feel safer thinking that they're seeing someone who has uh, has figured it, figured it out, whatever it is, the meaning of life, the, 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 you know, the path to happiness, whatever that might be. And we do know a lot. We, we are very effective in helping people. But at the same time, we're human and nobody is immune to struggle. You cannot get through life and not experience some kind of struggle. Right. I was talking to my neighbor today, and she recently moved into my neighborhood, and we've actually become great friends overnight. So I didn't feel that this was too personal a question. I I wanted her reaction before I asked you this question, so I asked her if she'd ever seen a therapist. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and she's very open and bubbly, and, and all of a sudden she said, 
Why? Do you ask? So she was clearly taken aback by the question, and she didn't know about the topic of my show tonight. So I'm curious, do you think there's still a stigma with seeing a therapist? I think sometimes there is. It's gotten a lot better. Mm. I think that one of the reasons I wrote this book is that I wanted to show people that we're more the same than we are different. That, you know, there's no shame in, in the kinds of struggles that we go through. And if you are struggling, why not get help? And if you keep ending up, you know, we all have blind spots. And one thing therapy does really effectively for people is to help them see their blind spots. We hold up a mirror to people so they can see their reflection and see themselves in a way that maybe they haven't. So that they won't wonder, well, why do I keep shooting myself in the foot over and over and ending up in the same place? Um, and, and so, you know, it's, I, I think there's some misconception and some stigma around therapy because some people assume that, you only go to therapy if you're falling apart. You only go to therapy if something's really wrong with you, and that's just not the case. Do you think that patients sometimes become addicted to therapy, just sort of a place to kind of unload? I think that's a concern for some people. There's this one big misconception about therapy is that you're going to go to therapy, you're going to talk about your childhood ad nauseum, and you're never uh, going to leave. And that's if not. If it's not what one thing, it's your like. mother. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> but you know, I, I, I think that that's such a cliche yeah. and it's not what we actually do. And so in the book, you can see what do we actually do in therapy? What does it look like? And it doesn't look like that at all. Mm. And in fact, we want to encourage your independence. So from day one, our goal is to help you not to need us anymore, to help you learn to trust yourself, learn to make better decisions, learn to make different choices so that you aren't... Um, you know, ending up in these situations that are not fulfilling to you. Lori, in your book, you talk about the hierarchy of pain. You know, I always get annoyed when someone says, how bad can it really be? I mean, there's always someone worse off, right? I mean, you've heard that before. And I suppose, yeah. I suppose there is, but it really minimizes someone's pain. And I think that way of thinking actually stops a lot of people who could benefit from therapy, you know, from doing so. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? You know, when it's sort of like, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm cognizant that there are big differences between losing your nanny and finding out that your husband is gay. But pain is pain. I mean, would you agree with that? Right. So I say that in the book, that there's no hierarchy of pain. That I, you know, I go from, in the book, you see me go from working with this woman who's in her 30s and newly married and comes back from her honeymoon and finds out she has cancer, to going into a session where someone says, you know, why do I always have to initiate sex? Right. Um, and, and it would be really easy to minimize that person's problem and say, you know, gay, okay, you should see the person I just saw right before you who's dying mm. of cancer in her 30s. Right. But, but the thing is, it, there's something underlying a lot of the, you know, what, sound, what might sound like surface complaints when people come in. There's something very painful about being rejected by somebody that you love or, being, or the perception of being rejected by somebody that you love. And so if you minimize that, this person is going to suffer, and why should they? Why shouldn't they, um, you know, get the help that they need when they're in extreme pain over something? Right, right. In your book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, you highlight, obviously, the five patients, the four of, your, four of yours and yourself included. What made you select the other four? I mean, what was so significant about them? I wanted to pick people who were very different from one another, and uh, and 
I wanted to pick people who were also very different from me. So each of the people whose stories that we're reading um, are completely different histories and um, problems that they're coming in with and personalities, um, age, gender, you name it. Um, and I think that's because I think that what's really striking about their stories is that the reader can relate to every single person. You may like some of them better than others, but you can relate to their struggles even if they feel very different from you. And I think that helps us have more compassion for the people around us. I think so many times we go through the world and think, oh, that, I have nothing in common with that person or that person's a jerk or whatever you think. But if you really get to know somebody as you get to know the patients in the book, you can't help but find some commonality with them and also find some empathy and compassion, both for them and for yourself. When I first started, you start your book off with the patient who thinks the whole world are idiots. I mean, I yes. just could not stop laughing. I have to tell you. <laughs> and I'm not so sure. Part of me was a little scared because some, because I, you know, I, I'm sort of a high energy person and, you know, I'm very high functioning. And so I get, I can get very impatient and sometimes, you know, people can bother me. And I thought, oh, does that make me a narcissist? <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, right. So, so I, I run into him at a Lakers game at one point, and he's this person who's very impatient with the world. He thinks he knows better than everybody else, and he thinks everybody's an idiot. And we're at a Lakers game, and I'm there with my child, and he's there with uh, his child and a friend and, and that friend's daughter. And they're in line, and I hear this voice, and I realize it's my patient's voice, and he's <laughs> complaining, and he's been very condescending to the people in front of him in line. Oh. And at this, and, and on, on the one hand, I think, wow, he's really, he's really being a jerk. But on the other hand, I think, yeah, you know, I'm sort of cheering him <laughs> on because we don't, it's halftime and it's about to end and we don't want to miss the beginning of the third quarter either. So I think it's those moments, our darker sides, our shadow sides, where we can relate to people. And again, in this book, we really, you know, you see all of people, not just the side they want to present out in, in polite company, but, you know, the, the real versions of ourselves, mm -hmm. the full gamut. Uh, we do need to take a short break. When we come back, I'd love to hear how therapy changed the course of your life. I mean, what really shifted for you? Listeners, stay with us here. More to come. Don't go anywhere. I appreciate you hanging out with me. More talk on the way here on 95.9 WATD. Do you remember the last time your vehicle was in that pristine condition? Angel's Touch offers full-service detailing and bodywork. Family-owned and operated with several packages to choose from, you can count on your car to be immaculate from bumper to bumper, undercarriage to sunroof. Call Angel's Touch today at 508-759-1111. Collision, detailing, and full restoration, because you can always trust an Angel's Touch. Visit them at capepodautobodyanddetailing.com. So what are you waiting for? Ladies, it's time to enjoy a new you. Stop hiding. Experience a tradition of quality results and a standard of excellence and service at Kima Cosmetic Surgery Anti-Aging Center in Norwell. 
the best kept secret south of Boston. Whether you're looking to seek enhancement, reconstruction, or skincare, Kima is the only place to go. Having been in business for 11 years, their clients include A-listers. Kima is the first clinic in Massachusetts to use Limitless MD, human umbilical cord stem cells. These are the first human umbilical cord stem cells created for cosmetic procedures used in combination with some of the most advanced technologies. I've been to Kima myself and wouldn't go anywhere else because I expect exceptional results. So contact Kima today to schedule your consultation at 781-871-4200 or visit them at kimaantiaging.com and discover the internal and external solution you've been looking for. Now, what are you waiting for? Looking for a unique experience to dining? Rio Brazilian Steakhouse brings an authentic Brazilian flavor with a great atmosphere to the restaurant scene in Plymouth. The interior is warm and welcoming, and the buffet style offers a relaxed atmosphere while offering fine dining with the traditional rodizio style from Rio, the heart of Brazil. Come dine and watch your dishes being prepared and cooked over the grill. Plymouth's best-kept secret, Rio Brazilian Steakhouse offers a full buffet daily, along with wine and beer. Rio Brazilian Steakhouse is located at 318 Court Street in Plymouth and is open seven days a week. For an unforgettable experience from start to finish, visit them at riosteakhouserestaurant.com. You'll be glad you did. I'm Francesca Luca, and you're listening to Talk with Francesca on 95.9 WATD. All right, we are back, and you're listening to Talk with Francesca. My guest is Lori Gottlieb. We are discussing her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Welcome back, Lori. Thank you. So, Lori, how did therapy change the course of your life, assuming that it did? Oh, absolutely. It's funny because... With every single patient in the book, what they come in with, the story that they come in with ends up being uh, the story different from the story that they leave with. So my story when I came in was um, this boyfriend and I were planning to get married, and suddenly he tells me one day that he has decided he doesn't want to live with a kid under his roof for the next 10 years. And that kid is my 8-year-old who has not been hiding in the closet during the time that we were dating. Um, so my version of the story is that, you know, clearly something's wrong with this guy. And, um, and you know, my friends, I, I talk in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Mm-hmm. And your friends will give you idiot compassion, which is you dodged a bullet. He was, you know, you're, you're lucky that you found out now and he's awful and all of those things. But a therapist will offer you wise compassion, which is, I want you to look at your role in this. And so the story that I go in with is he's the villain and I've been wronged, and I'm just here for some crisis management. And that's not at all what the therapy ends up being about, because in the very first session, I say, you know, now I'm in my 40s, and I've wasted all this time with him, and half my life is over. And my therapist gloms onto that statement, half my life is Mm, over. And we realize that that's what I'm there for. I'm there to figure out what I want in the second half of my life. What will give my life meaning and purpose? And what have I been wasting my time on? And what do I, how do I want to spend my time more intentionally? And there are various kind of secrets that, um, you know, that are revealed throughout the book. Um, Creating something bigger. Of right. grieving something bigger, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, how do, we, how do we move on from that? And where do we go from that? 
Right. You, and you talk about the, the music under the lyrics. Yeah. So when people come in, I'm listening not just to what they're saying, not just the lyrics, but the music under the lyrics, mm-hmm. which is what is the underlying pattern or struggle that got the person to that place uh, in the first place? How did they get there? So it's not just, here's this breakup in my case, but what got you there? How did you end up there? It really is quite a skill, and, and one friends shouldn't try to use on their friends. <laughs> no. Right? No. If you still want to have friends, that is. <laughs> well, friends also, you know, friends have an agenda. Even when they don't know they have an agenda, they have one. Well, they, they do. So I see a lot of couples in my practice, and often I will say something to somebody in the couple that I can say to them, but their partner can't say to them because I don't have an agenda. But the partner does. The partner partly says, hey, there's this thing about you, and I want you to notice this because you'll you'll struggle less. But the other part of it is I want you to notice this because if you change, you'll make my life less difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. so there is that agenda. Um, you know, nobody is impartial when you know that person in the outside world, whether it's a friend or a family member or, you know, a spouse. Um, those people are not objective. And that, well, um, we also come from, uh, uh, excuse me for interrupting, but we also come from uh, our own frame of reference. Absolutely, absolutely. So especially, again, going back to couples, people can can see the very same incident from very different perspectives, and neither is wrong or right. They're just, here's here's how, here was my experience of that, and they can differ. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think what, what a therapist offers you is um, a way of looking at something where that agenda isn't there. Right. You know, my best friend always says, how can a therapist really help when people never tell the whole story? Well, that's not me. I'm an open book. I can't imagine holding back, shameful or not. But you say this always missing information in the dilemma that people present. Did you make choices to leave some of, uh, we'll call it your luggage out, if you will? When you were in well, therapy, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a conscious choice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think sometimes what happens is we we keep secrets in the world. We keep secrets from people we know. We also keep secrets from ourselves. Exactly. And sometimes we aren't aware of something. You know, we think, oh, well, that's not important, or that's not an issue, or I don't need to bring that up because that's not what I'm here for. <laughs> um, you know, or sometimes we don't even look at something. Like I had one of the patients that I write about in the book is she drinks too much and and she has a problem with alcohol addiction and she isn't aware of that she she can rationalize it 10 different ways about you know why she drinks what she drinks but she you know and i we always have this uh this assessment to make which is when somebody is kind of uh protective of giving you that information and then they tell you how much they drink you know double it because that's probably <laughs> more accurate um so you know it's like a little clinical formula yeah. um but but i think you know sometimes we can't see ourselves clearly and and so it's not that we're necessarily lying to our therapist it's that we have come to a realization yet. We don't know that it's a problem yet. Let's talk a little bit about vulnerability. You know, I mean, it's really old news that that being open about ourselves is what actually makes us more more likable, right? I mean, you know, when we're open, when we're vulnerable, when we're we're you know, we're we're representing our pure or, or showing our pure self to someone, that's what really makes 
us feel connected and whole, right? That's what gives us the essence, the, the substance in a relationship. But yet it seems that it's also the thing that we, we kind of pull back with, you know? And it's almost like people are kind of so darn allergic, really, to being their true selves. I mean, well, of course, like we mentioned at the beginning of, of this, uh, don't look, at, you know, look at Facebook. It's no wonder people are scared to death of showing their weaknesses. But I mean, you know. Right. And so, so what do you do? Yeah, what do you do with the, those patients? The irony of that is that so many people think that if they show the pretty version of themselves to the world and to their therapist, you know, the performative aspect of you want your therapist to like you and, you know, you want to be entertaining and, and you wonder about the person in the waiting room and, you know, <laughs> does your therapist like you more? I think we all have this desire to be liked, which has to do with a sense of belonging. And the irony is that the more that people perform and don't show their true selves, the harder it is to like them. The harder it is to really get to know them. It's like there's this wall between the two of you. And once people let down that wall and really show you who they are and, and show the truth of who they are, they become so likable because they're so relatable. Everything that they're hiding is actually what would draw people toward them. But people hide it because they worry that it will repel people. And it's just the opposite. Even if there's something that's really dark? Everybody has a dark side. And, you know, I think that often people will come in and they think they're the only ones. And, and I think it's gender-based, too. When you look at men will come in and they'll say, I've never told anybody this before. <sighs> and then they'll say something that, you know, is so mild. It's kind of like, you know, I don't like my neighbor. You know, it's something, <laughs> you know you're, you're, like, you're like, really? really? Oh, no, not me? that. <laughs> I think men are, are so, you know, in our culture, it's so hard for men to be vulnerable. And women will come in and they'll say, you know, I've never told anybody this before, except for my mother, my sister, and my best friend. Right? So <laughs> oh, they, then you told, told the world. <laughs> right? They, they've told they've told a few people, but it's and then what they say is usually, you know, m there's there's more shame around it, um, and so um, you know. But I think either way, um, people really feel like if they show, you know, these darker sides of themselves, that that you know, they're going to be seen as as is like something's wrong with them and and nothing's wrong with them you know we all have we're all multifaceted and we all have dark thoughts and we all have you know people are so ashamed of things like envy they're so ashamed of you know wishing ill on somebody else they're so ashamed of you know these these ungenerous feelings but they're normal yeah, I mean, obviously they, they are. Um, nothing, you, you quoted a James Baldwin at the beginning of your book, nothing is more desirable than to be re released from an affliction, but nothing's more frightening than to be divested of a crutch. It took me a couple times to read that and say, okay, what? Yeah, and then I realized, yeah, ain't that the truth, right? So, <laughs> you know, yeah, we want to be released of what's really bothering us, but, but the fact is that we don't want to let go of, of that crutch. So then why do we resist this change and how much transformation can someone really expect? This I'm dying to know. Well, that's what I wanted to show in the book was how much change can really happen. And I think the most uh, important example of that is this woman that I write about who's about to turn 70 and 
and she, her adult children are estranged from her. They won't talk to her. She made significant mistakes as a parent. Um, she's had a few marriages under her belt. Uh, she's very lonely. She, she didn't really do anything professionally, um, you know, even though she's a very talented artist. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she says, if things don't change in a year, I don't want to live anymore. Oh. And I really wondered when she first came in, you know, how much could reasonably change in a year, realistically. Um, you know, I could help her become less isolated, but, you know, there were so many problems that had been there for decades and decades. Um, but she was ready, and so when people come in, I'm, I'm scanning for strengths, too. I'm not just listening for what's wrong, but I'm also looking for what is their readiness? Why this day, this week, this year did you call and come in when this has been going on for decades? There had to be some readiness there, some motivation to want to change. And change is hard, going back to your question, um, because with change comes loss, that we have to give up something that's familiar to us, even if the familiar thing is miserable, right, Um, or unpleasant. It's really hard to say, but I'm going to go into the unknown, because humans don't like to... um, go into uncertainty. We're very afraid of uncertainty. But I'm thinking that about the 70-year-old woman, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, well, if she feels so bad about herself and she feels so isolated and lonely, how is she going to be able to get out there and be with people if she doesn't feel that she's almost she's not worthy in the first place? That's what's going through my mind. I don't know, but maybe that's too big of a question. Well, well, that's what we talk about in, in the book is she really feels like because of the mistakes that she made earlier in her life um, that, that she was, you know, she was damaged goods. Right. And, and so, you know, I think that that's what I'm trying to show in the book is what did that process look like and, and what was the work like and how did she get to this place where it wasn't as though all of her problems were solved. It was that she ended up having quite a full life that that she never thought she could have was it perfect no um but was it a lot better than what she started with you bet are there ever patients that you don't like you know that's such a great question because when i was training a supervisor said to me um there's something likable in everyone it's your job to find it and I thought, well, that's nice, but I doubt that, you know, <laughs> I doubt that you can find something likable in every single person. There must be people oh. that you just don't like. And what I learned as a therapist was that my supervisor was right, that if they let me see them, if I can get to know them, I have found deep affection for every single person that I've worked with. But that's because they let their walls down. They let their defenses down. And I really got to know them and see their humanity. If somebody is is going to behave in a way that's very abrasive or off-putting and they never change, um, I don't really know if I like them because I didn't really get to know them. I got to see this you know, this sort of surface version, mm. the, what we call the false self. Yes. Um, but I don't really know what they're like. And so when we come back, I would love to know what you do with that patient. We do need to take a short break, listeners. Stay with us here. Don't go anywhere. This is This is Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca. We'll talk more in just a bit on 95.9 WATD. 
The new Cobblestone Cafe on Hanover Street in Boston brings casual, on-the-go American fare to the North End, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Open daily at 7 a.m., Cobblestone Cafe offers burgers, barbecue, salads, fries, milkshakes, seafood, and the very popular Snickerdoodle iced coffee. Delivery and catering are also available. Cobblestone Cafe, 227 Hanover Street in Boston. For more information, call 857-263-8057 or visit them online at cobblestonecafene.com. Hey, long time no see. You look amazing. Thomas Negrelli? I have been thinking about changing up my look for the spring. Did you say that number again? Thanks, I'm calling him now. Looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you might just want to venture out to Boston this weekend and dine at Terramia Restaurante, a true gem among all those rhinestones in Boston's North End. This cozy tutoria with stucco walls and beam ceilings specializes in creative interpretations of Italian classics. Like the cuisines here, the atmosphere is elegant yet understated. Since opening in 1993, Terramia Restaurante has aimed to convince diners that there's always more to Italian food than just red sauce. Over the years, the innovative and beloved restaurant has done a great deal of convincing, and best of all, it's reasonably priced. This best-kept secret is worth the trip. Call 617-523-3112 or visit terramiarestaurante.com. You're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca. The talk continues on 95.9 WATD. All right, we are back. And my guest is Lori Gottlieb. We are discussing her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Welcome back, Lori. Thank you. So before the break, we're talking about the, the patient who basically never lets their guard down. And what happens, how do you, what do you do with that person? I mean, how do you... If you're, if you're not going, is there ever a time ever that you cannot help someone? Oh, yeah. In fact, I write about one of those patients in the book where, um, you know, she comes in every week and she tells me that I'm not helping her. And um, we have, I think a lot of people don't realize this, and so I wrote about them also, which are these consultation groups where we meet with colleagues every week and discuss are cases where we feel like we want feedback or we may be stuck. And um, I took all of their advice week after week after week, and no matter what I tried, it just failed with this patient. And, um, you know, I, I kept suggesting that maybe, you know, we tried to see what was going on, why, you know, why what I was trying wasn't working with her. And um, she, she didn't want to leave, but, but she kept complaining about how I wasn't helping her. And finally I had to stop the treatment because I felt like I was wasting her time that it, you know, no matter what I tried, it just, you know, it just didn't seem to make an impression on her in any way. And I, the last thing I wanted to do was waste her time. And it was, it was a really hard thing. And I've, I've never had to do that um, wow. since then, but it was, it was one of these things where you say sometimes you just can't help somebody and maybe 
I was the wrong person for her, and I hope that she found the right person because, um, you know, I really wanted to help her, but for whatever reason, um, I just couldn't seem to get through. And there must have been some level of boredom on your part, no? I mean, just listening to that yeah, same I mean, I, broken yeah. record, right? I mean, over and over and over and over. It's like, you know, when they're looking for bananas at Meineke, right? You know that old expression? You know, they, they're they looking for something <laughs> no. to change. But no, you don't. Well, you do now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right? No, but, yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, it, I think people are so worried about boring their therapists and the people who are boring aren't the people whose lives may seem unremarkable to them. Mm-hmm. The people who are, who are boring are the people who won't let you in, who are, who go on tangent after tangent, who kind of you know, try to distract you, look over here, look over here, look over here, but never really let you see them. Those are the people who are boring. And so we talk about that in the room. One of the nice things about therapy is that everything can be talked about. Um, you know, I think out in the world, we just, we just kind of make all kinds of assumptions about what the other person might be thinking or feeling. But in the therapy room, you really get that feedback and you really get that information, which is really helpful for when you do go out in the world. Because we like to say that insight is the booby prize of therapy. You can have all the insight in the world, right. Right. but if you don't change out in the world, it's useless. It's kind of like somebody yeah. who says, oh, now I understand why I keep getting in arguments with my wife, and then they go home and they do the exact same thing. Well, you know, it's great that you have the insight, but if you're not changing your behavior, the insight is really useless. You need to you need to use that insight to make changes. Which is not an easy thing to do, especially if you are... A self-sabotaging kind of a person where you keep doing the same thing over and over again. What is that expression? You, you're crazy. The craziness is is when you keep doing the same thing over and over again, but expect different results. Yes, the right. definition of insanity. Yeah, That's exactly, right. exactly. All right, let's talk about you a little bit because um, we haven't really covered that. And um, so you share with us the reason why your relationship ended was because your boyfriend of two years said he didn't want to have a child underfoot for the next 10. Um, But do you feel that that was just a cover story for maybe something else that might have been going on with him? Well, that's what's so interesting. And that's why I wanted to tell that story because he starts off being the villain. And by the end, I think people can see that there were so many layers to this story and he's not a bad guy at all. But I think that What's so interesting is the way that somebody can tell a story that's very much through their lens. And when you were asking earlier about, you know, what are the things that people keep from their therapist, sometimes they're not keeping anything from the therapist, but they're telling the story in a particular way. I also write the Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I only get that one letter. So I, you know, in the therapy room, I can ask follow-up questions. I get to know the person over time. They might feel more comfortable telling me other parts of the story over time. But in one letter, I know I'm only getting that one version of the story. And that's all my therapist got with the boyfriend story. And what, you know, he quickly helped me to see was that I was avoiding things, too, that I knew that he wasn't really a kid person. But because we both really wanted to be with each other, we both ignored that. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he knew that from the very beginning and, and said, well, you know, he kept trying to convince himself that he would be okay with it. And ultimately, when it was time to get married, he wasn't. Um, and, you know, with me, I would see little glimpses of it that, you know, he, he really was irritated by kids in restaurants or he didn't want his, um, you know, nieces and nephews to stay with him when they came. Um, you know, he wanted the family to stay somewhere else. Um, he, wasn't, he wasn't a kid person. And, and I just didn't want to see that 
even though I saw it in his behavior, but I never brought it up with him. I never said, hey, what's that about, even though I should have. Mm-hmm. So I was as much at fault as he was. So help me with this. What surprises me, and I, you know, I was wondering about this when I was reading your book, and I, I think I read it correctly, that when your boyfriend broke up with you, you first wanted everyone to agree with you that he was some sort of a sociopath. Is that right? Is that what oh, that was my, yeah. That was something that my friends and I would say. Okay, yeah, we didn't all right. Liter- I, we didn't literally mean he was a sociopath. Okay, all right. Then, then I, I I'll scratch the question because I I said to myself that's a pretty strong description for someone who wants to end a relationship, um, that come especially coming from a therapist. And although I can completely empathize with your pain, and I know you wanted to make him out to be a monster. I mean. Priorities change all the time between people and relationships, but it wouldn't occur to me to call someone a sociopath for splitting up. So I wanted to understand that piece, but I guess it was just sort of like he was the biggest jerk in the world. And I guess there are certain stages when we break up that first, you know, we're in shock and then we're in, you know, denial. And well, it's just like a death, right? Right, it is. And I think that, you know, one thing that I talk about, too, in the book is that when, when your present falls apart, it's not just the the moment. So it's like when someone's spouse dies, it's not just the day-to-day that they're missing with them. It's the future, too. So when the present falls apart, the future falls apart. And you're missing all of the things that you would have experienced with that person. So grief is complicated in that way mm-hmm. it's not just it's it's not just you're missing the thing that's happening right in front of you it's that you're missing this whole future that you had constructed in your mind and it's hard to feel pain and and i, I think we all distract ourselves i think they, you know facebook is like a, a a drug for so many people i mean it really is yeah you know well, my my yeah, my colleague calls the internet um, the most effective short-term non-prescription painkiller out there. You know, I, I, when I was trying to decide if I should move or I shouldn't move, and I didn't really want to face what, you know, I didn't want to face moving, but there was a part of me that knew I really needed to, um, I became obsessed with rug shopping. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, tell, and, 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 you know, I, I like to think I'm evolved enough that finally after like three months, I said to myself, what is your insanity with rug shot? Like I could not stop myself. And I realized this is a distraction of something you're really not wanting to face. So talk to our listeners a little bit about how people distract themselves when they don't want to look at something, assuming that that's what they're doing. People do. They use all kinds of distractions. People are brilliant at using distractions, whether that's the Internet or eating too much, eating too little, um, mm-hmm. you know, creating drama in their relationships. That's another distraction from really dealing with the issues that are there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, drinking, drugs, um, you know, too much You know, binge-watching Netflix, but, like, in an unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are all kinds of ways that we distract ourselves, shopping, like you were saying, um, because we don't want to feel our feelings. And so many people come to therapy and they say, help me not to feel. Ugh. And what they don't real, they don't literally say those words, but they're saying, you know, the pain, I, take away my pain. Help me not to feel this pain. You're going to have to feel your pain in order to move through it. And right. people think that if they just, like, tamp down their feelings, that they'll go away. But the more you try to suppress your feelings, the stronger they get. Oh, yeah. So what happens is 
you, you know, they come out in, in other behaviors, right? They come out in the obsessive rug shopping, for example. Oh, I There's didn't buy them. Feelings. I didn't, never bought any rugs. Well, that, <laughs> just wanted to clarify. You know, I don't have a house full of rugs. Right. <laughs> right. I, but I mean that, you know, whatever the distraction is, that it will come out in, in those behaviors. It could be a short-temperedness that it comes out in. It could be, um, you know, anxiety or wi- a withdrawal. It could be anything. Right. Um, but what happens is the feelings don't go away just because you want to will them away. And the other part of it is that when you try to mute the pain, you're also going to mute the joy. You can't, you can't suppress one set of feelings without suppressing all of your feelings. You either turn on the feelings or you turn off the feelings. And you can't just select a la carte which feelings you want to turn off. I personally think that if I am feeling upset about something, I would rather just feel the pain because it eventually will go right through you rather than be you know trying to avoid it because i agree with you then you're stuck with suffering isn't that right or you know i mean then you really are suffering if you don't just allow it to be you know just like kind of let it flow through you Right. It, the, the pain becomes more intense, even though you don't realize it. It's almost like the difference between how we look at our physical well-being and our emotional well-being. With our physical well-being, if we're experiencing pain, we don't say, I'm just going to ignore that chest pain. And then, you know, yeah, yeah. And, then, and then I'll just have, you know, and then they don't go to the cardiologist and then they have a massive coronary. Most people will say, I'm having pain. I'm going to go get it checked out before they have a massive coronary. But what happens with emotional pain is people say, oh, well, I have a roof over my head and food on the table, so it can't, it's not really that bad. I'm going to pretend it's not there. Uh-huh. Or it's inconvenient. I don't really want to feel it, so I'm going to pretend it's not there. They won't get it checked out until they're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack, a big crisis. Right. And first of all, it's harder to treat when people come in in the midst of crisis. And the other part of that is they've suffered unnecessarily for however long, from, from the time that they started to feel the pain to when it became a full-blown crisis. We do need so, to take... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, so, so we shouldn't really differentiate between the two. Mm-hmm. All right. We do need to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, more to come. This is This is Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca. We'll talk more in just a bit on 95.9 WATD. Tides is beachside dining at its best all year round. Located at the end of the Nahant Causeway, directly on Nahant Beach, the ocean views from the dining room and the pub can't be beat, no matter what the season. Nominated for Best of the North Shore from North Shore Magazine for Best Alfresco Dining, Best Kid-Friendly Restaurant, Best Lobster Dinner, and Best Water View. Why would you go anywhere else? Whether you choose their dining room, a frosty pint at their bar, or a sun-drenched deck on Nahant Beach, they guarantee you great atmosphere with super food and service. Their menu is full of fresh, high-quality seafood, prime rib, chicken, pasta, and pizza that everyone will love. Check out their drink menu for fun cocktails, 30 ice-cold beers on tap, and their well-rounded wine list with their state-of-the-art tap wines. They feature full-service lottery and kino. Tides is the place to watch any big game. They have over 20 HD TVs. At Tides, they specialize in casual dining with food that's just delicious, not pretentious. Tides is a fantastic restaurant anytime, summer or winter, lunch or dinner, rain or shine. Your pets are family. Take your dog to the Dog's Den in Pembroke. Your furry friend will go from smelling crummy to yummy. 
because Leah at the Dog's Den really cares. Whatever your pet's needs are, from dematting to extra scissoring, the Dog's Den in Pembroke has your furry friends covered. So call the Dog's Den today at 781-826-7008 or visit thedogsdengrooming.com. Located in Boston's North End holds one of our best-kept secrets, Antico Forno, ranked number nine of the top ten Italian restaurants around the world within the category of being one of the most authentic. With a welcoming family feel, it's hard to argue the experience you have when enjoying dinner at Antico Forno. Best known for their brick oven pizza, their world-class traditional cuisine does not fall far behind. Come enjoy dinner at Antico Forno and feel like part of the family. Open daily from 11.30 a.m. until 10 p.m. Call us today at 617-723. 6733 or visit us at Hey, this is James Woods and you are listening to Talk with Francesca on 95.9 WATD. All right, we are back. My guest is Lori Gottlieb. We are discussing her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Welcome back, Lori. Thank you. Lori, uh, You had written an article in the New York Times featuring Dr. Edith Eager, who we had the pleasure of having on the show recently. What did you take away from her book, The Choice, Embrace the the Possible? She had the most extraordinary story. Um, Mm. She was a Holocaust survivor. She was 16 when she was taken uh, from her family and into a concentration camp, and um, she lost her parents uh in the concentration camp and um she was she was actually a a very high level dancer i think she was going to be in the olympics in the hungarian olympics i believe um and um and she she became a therapist uh later in life and her story was really extraordinary because she talks about how you how you make a life for yourself after such trauma um, whatever that trauma is, hers clearly was, um, you know, horrific. Um, but she really works with people who have experienced all kinds of trauma. And uh, I found her story uh, one of resilience, one of hope, one of um, it was it was incredibly inspiring. And she's, I think she's almost 90 now. Yep. And uh, she's, she's just... Yep, she's yeah, 91, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I would love to hear uh, that conversation that you had with her. But I did um, I did review her book, um, and I was so moved by it. And I think, uh, you know, both as as somebody who, as a therapist, who, who works with people with trauma, it really taught me a lot about how she helps people move through trauma. Mm-hmm. And I've incorporated a lot of that, I think, into my work. Yeah, actually, I have it posted on iTunes. She, uh, Dr. Eager shared the story of a racist 14-year-old patient of hers, and obviously this was a challenge for her to treat him, but she realized that she saw her own hatred in herself. Have you had similar experiences in seeing yourself in patients? Absolutely. You know, I think that the questions that um, that patients are asking themselves are very much the same questions that we have to grapple with about ourselves. Um, when they're... Uh, you know, whatever they're experiencing, we might not have experienced the same thing, but we've certainly had similar feelings. And so, you know, I, I say in the book that we're like mirrors reflecting mirrors reflecting mirrors, helping one another see what we can't see on our own. And I really believe that we grow in connection with others, whether that's as a patient to a therapist or being, um, you know, being the therapist to the patient or just being in the relationships that make up the fabric of our lives. 
So with just a few minutes left, what was the best advice that you were ever given? The best advice I was ever given was um, after I had left medical school, I became a journalist for a long time. And at a certain point, I thought about going back to medical school. And I called up the dean at the medical school and said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And her advice to me was, you're welcome to come back, but now you have a baby and you're probably going to be doing medication management if you're a psychiatrist. And you were always really interested in the deeper relationships with your patients, why don't you go to graduate school and get a degree in clinical psychology and then you can have the kind of practice that you want. And that was the best advice that anybody had ever given me. And what's the best advice you can give to our listening audience tonight that can make an immediate difference in their lives? I think to be kinder to themselves. So many people um, don't realize how unkind they are to themselves. I had one patient write down everything that she said to herself in her head for a few days, and she came back and she said, I'm so embarrassed to share this with you because I'm a bully. I didn't realize it. Um, She said, I'm a bully to myself. She said, if I said any of this to any of my friends, I would have no friends. I think we don't realize how if we have a choice between believing one of two things about ourselves, I'm lovable, I'm unlovable, I'm worthy, I'm unworthy, we tend to believe the negative one. And it's just not accurate. So I would say immediately what they can do is be kinder to yourself. Hold yourself accountable. Don't let yourself off the hook. But you can, you can be kind to yourself and hold yourself accountable without self-flagellating. So how do you shut down that critical, over-controlling voice? You have to notice it. You have to notice that it's there. So that's why I gave that patient that assignment was write it down when it's happening. And once you notice it's there, it's much easier to stop it and to say, wait, do I really have to talk to myself that way? Is it really true that I'm stupid? Is it really true that I'm whatever you're calling yourself in that moment because you did something very human? Can you have compassion for yourself the way you would have compassion for somebody else if they did the exact same thing? Mm -hmm. Lori, Are you experiencing any challenges right now? Um, In my, you know, not the same challenges that I experienced (laughs) uh, in the book. Not, not, not just the challenges of what what, what I like to call the daily problems of living. You know, um, how do you have enough time for things? How do you, how do you balance, uh, you know, all of the stressors in our lives? But I'm in a really good place in my life, and that's what I wanted to write about: was how did I get there? How did the people in the book get there? That's what I wanted to show. Did you know that Howard Stern's life has completely changed because he's been in therapy? I've heard that. He talked to, you know, we both talked to Terry Gross. I know that. I know about that. About therapy. And, um, and, and it was really interesting <laughs> to hear him talk about his therapy. Um, you know, maybe maybe he'll invite me on his show. I don't know. Um, and we can talk about therapy. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I have to admit, I wondered whether it was really, really real or whether this was just his new shtick. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know, but he seemed he seemed genuine when he was talking about it. He seemed to really um, you know, be able to see things about himself and his his what he called, I think, his narcissism. Um, you know, that maybe he couldn't see before. He talked about how he's changed the way right. that he relates to people. I don't I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know enough about yeah, yeah. what what he's like, but but I do know that I was I was very curious to hear him talk about therapy, and he talked about it on the view too. He talked about therapy. So I I've, I've seen him talk about um, you know the ways that therapy has helped him to change as well. We have about a minute and a half left. I don't mean to put you in a box, but is there anything I haven't asked you or that you want to share with the audience? 
I think that something you said earlier about the stigma, I feel like people feel so isolated in their experience, and I hope that if people read this book that they will feel more connected and less alone um, and, and much more, um, you know, normal <laughs> with all the things that they think and feel and do. All right, Lori Gottlieb, maybe you should talk to someone. Lori, do you, what is your website? My website is LoriGottlieb.com, and I'm also on Twitter at LoriGottlieb1. Fantastic. It has been an absolute pleasure. Loved having you on the show again. Thanks again for being with us tonight on Talk with Francesca. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. All right. We've got to wrap things up. You've been listening to Talk with Francesca. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, spread the word on social media. I'd love to hear from you. So drop me a note at info at talkwithfrancesca.com. See you next week. Like snow without a warning. Like how the summer feels upon